I actually had taken an investment class the spring of 2009. We had like pretend stocks that we chose to track throughout the semester. And March of 2009 was when the market hit its bottom. And then from there on out, it went gangbusters for the next decade or so. But anyway, it was like in the beginning of the semester, yeah, I'm so glad this isn't real money. And by the end, it was like, oh, I wish it was. That's the nature of it. I learned way more about the world of finances and planning and tax strategies through actually doing the internship than I did sitting in the classroom. In a corporate world where all employees have great leaders with no egos, that create fun cultures where people can do their best work. The employees and companies thrive while doing great things for the customers, themselves, and each other. Well, we know that rarely happens. I'm Jeff Palaccio. I have been a leader for over 40 years for every t-shirt size company from small 16 employees to extra large over 1 million. Please join me while I interview outstanding leaders that will share stories of great leadership and not so great. It will help you become a better leader while poking fun at all the crazy shit that happens in corporate America. Hi, I'm Joe Deshawn and welcome to The Corporate Couch with Jeff Palaccio. Today, Jeff is interviewing Kristen Herman. Kristen is a certified financial planner working as a wealth management advisor for Northwestern Mutual since 2009. She has earned a Bachelor of Arts in Business Management and Marketing from Taylor University. Let's listen as Jeff talks to Kristen. Kristen, good morning and welcome to the Corporate Couch today. Good morning, Jeff. Glad to be here. Full disclosure, we're recording here on August 14th, 2023, and it was uh, Kristen's birthday yesterday. So wish her a happy birthday through the uh, Ethernet and uh, Electron universe uh, when you hear this podcast. Yeah, so uh, very excited to talk to you. Love your uh, very impressive but short career journey so far, but uh, we will, we're going to dive into that. But I always like to start with a fun question, and I'll give you kudos for uh making me think of this one, but Kristen, share something that, that will surprise people about you. I like to have a lot of fun. That's not what surprises people. What surprises people is when they see how competitive I am. I uh, grew up in a home that, you know, German Irish family, like we could turn anything into a game. And yet when I get out on like get a, get some cards out or I played competitive tennis all through college and I had some dorm mates that came to watch me because I guess they hadn't seen me, you know, in any other type of a, a game or sports scenario at that point. And they came to watch me play tennis and I, I top one or two on the team, depending on the year. And so they were like, oh, my gosh, like you're a different person out there. And so to be honest, that's been something that over the years, like I, I try to tamp it down a little bit so that it's not too much for people. Um, but honestly, I've, I've learned over the years, like, oh, it can, I mean, as you, you're probably aware, often our greatest strength can become a weakness when they're overextended. Sure. And so it's like, how do we harness this for the well-being of others, not just to 
dominate and feel good about myself. So I have to ask you a question. You have three children and when they were young and you played whatever candy land or whatever, would you let them win? Oh, sure. For the most part. Okay. I mean, I would, I would make it close enough. Uh, My daughter takes after me. She's seven. My kids are seven, five, and two. So we're still in the candy land phase. And sometimes she needs to, to have a little dose of humility. So I kind of try to read it to see what would be best for them. (laughs) I love that. I love that. So you, you put aside your competitive spirit to uh for the greater good of raising your kids uh so i i, I love that approach i uh the, joe montana uh the famous quarterback of the 49ers and ended his career with the chiefs he was very competitive he used to uh his roommate uh, back in the 49ers days was uh, dwight clark a famous receiver he they had that famous uh went touchdown uh pass and catch uh, against the Cowboys to go into the Super Bowl, but uh, they were roommates and they used to race each other to see who would go to sleep first, which I never understood who, how do you decide the winner? Cause you can always fake your sleeping, but, but Joe Montana would not let his kids win in board games. So there you go. Okay. Um, so you played competitive tennis, but what growing up, obviously you played tennis, but what else did you enjoy doing as a kid? I played all the sports I could. One season, I think it was late middle school, in the same season I was playing basketball, which I played that competitively through high school. Um, I was taking tennis lessons. I was, what else? I was playing club volleyball and I was in the school play. So that was a little bit extreme. I was only one of two kids. So, well, you know, I I understand bigger families. It's like, you kind of have to limit what you do, but my parents were happy to support me. That, That gave me joy competing sure obviously and uh, I would have played more volleyball in high school but volleyball and tennis were the same season and tennis was was my greater passion so we've only we met previously via zoom so you can never tell how tall people are but since you play basketball and volleyball how what you how how tall are you Kristen well I was a guard in basketball so I'm only five six okay only that's that's not that's good Okay, so point guard, controlling the flow, love that. My son played competitive tennis up until probably 14, played USTA. What lessons did you learn from tennis that you kind of apply to your professional life? I love that question because there is so much to learn from sports. And I still, to this day, I don't play as competitively, although... My husband played through high school, so we're getting out there more, um, just bringing the kids and we'll give them a little 10 or 15 minute lesson and then let them just ride around or do their own thing as he and I hit. And literally every time I'm just thinking about as I'm playing, how does this correlate to life? I'll give you an example. Sometimes I get in my own head and I get nervous about my backhand. My forehand is very strong. I'm a good overall player. Um, But if I get in my head too much, my backhand is horrible. Like I don't do a full swing. I don't move my feet. And that's the number one key is movement and watch the ball, right? Get to it and watch the ball. And then everything else is muscle memory. You don't have to think about it. But to get to that point took years of practice and 
drills and just hitting. And I think the key is let go of the results. Like what if your success is in what you give versus a certain outcome, right? So with my backhand specifically, rather than saying, okay, I need to be so concerned about how I hit this into the specific spot. What if it's just, well, no, as long as I'm getting to the ball, I'm watching the ball and I'm doing a full swing, wherever it goes from there, it'll go where it may. But if I can get to it and swing well, I'll learn. If I don't hit it in, okay, well, the next shot, like let go. That doesn't define me, right? Like you're going to hit thousands of balls out or into the net. Hopefully more you'll hit in the court. But just keep playing, keep play to win versus playing not to lose and let your success be in what you give versus what the outcome is. No, I love that. The thing I've noticed about it, um, you know, having this uh, and I didn't coach him. I played other sports, uh, but my uh, I had my tennis game was uh, basically nil. Didn't really play it growing up. But and I would say golf is similar, obviously, two different sports physically but both very similar mentally and what I loved about watching my son play and he probably played for about four years competitively what I loved about it is there's no coach while you're playing the match right so you're you have as a 10 year old 11 whatever age you're you're at playing you have to figure out oh I like your backhand, like you, oh, I'm in my head about my backhand. I know it's weak, but you're you're playing a match, so there's no timeouts where a coach is going to tell you. You have to figure it out. And I think it just carries can carry you so far, you know, just mentally and be and have an accountability to fix your own, you know, challenges, which I, I think is phenomenal. So yes. I don't know if you have thoughts on that since you played tennis, but yes, no mental toughness is incredible. And when you think about it, if we stop throughout our days and listen to our thoughts towards ourselves, like my inner critic, I would never talk to my children. Like I talk to myself now I've gotten a lot better over time, but I would just encourage the listeners to bring that to conscious awareness throughout your day. Like, how are you talking to yourself? And speaking of childhood, like often the way that we learned security and safety in our childhoods, that sometimes can, can breed healthy outcomes, like having good work ethic, maybe a perfectionistic mentality. Um, but it can also like there are things that we can let go. And part of that for me was my inner critic. And so when you're not doing well, or if a, a point or a game or a meeting isn't going how you may want it to, like, it's okay to pause, reset. And okay, how, how can I do my best from here on out? Right? Letting go of what didn't go well, and giving it all that we have and, and learning have, having that the mentality of, okay, rather than win or lose, what if it's win or grow? If I don't get the outcome, how can I grow from this? How can I get better? Growing up, did you have aspirations of being a tennis player uh, as, as an adult? Like what were your aspirations, you know, what was your dream? Like, oh, when I'm, when I'm an adult, I'm going to be this. What was this for you? 
when I was in eighth grade, I wanted to be a doctor. And then my junior year of high school, I took AP biology and that was a door shut in my face. I clearly learned that I was, did not have the science mind. That was a tough lesson, but I did learn. I, I remember my parents went in to meet with my teacher. We had early mornings, Jeff. I'm like, I don't know why I did this. Why did I sign up for this? But I had to go in at 7 a.m. three mornings a week for an extra hour. Everybody did. The whole class did. Wow. Um, 7 a.m. And then the class would officially start at 8. So it was basically, I don't know, 10 hours of class a week, 8, eight to 10. Uh, and this was like tough content. So anyway, halfway through the semester, I'm like, I, I'm, I can't do this. Like, this is too much. My parents go in and they're like, they meet with the my teacher and they come back. And, and they're like, okay, we, we know how challenging this is, but we think you can do it. And your teacher believes in you. And I'm like, no, that's supposed to be my way out. Like that's what this meeting was for was to like say I can stop. And so, uh, but I knew that they wanted the best for me. I knew my teacher, like he wouldn't have me stay if he didn't really believe that I could do it. And to be honest, Jeff, there was a point early on in my career Let's see, I started as an intern um, when I was uh, going into my senior year of college and I needed, I was a business major, um, came across this internship with this company, Northwestern Mutual, top 10 internship in the nation. I'm thinking, okay, this will look great on a resume and it's entrepreneurial sales, right? It's like hitting the phones, meeting with people, they give all the duties and responsibilities of a full-time advisor. And I just, it was so hard. I knew as an intern, like, all right, I just, I need to do this to, to graduate. This is in the wake of the 08 economic crisis. Like who's hiring interns when there have been massive layoffs and bailouts. And so I'm like, I, I got to get through this at least. Um, but then even as a full-time early on, like after about three, four months, you know, after I graduated doing it, I was ready to throw in the towel, but I had a mentor that I really I really appreciated who he was. I knew he wanted the best for me and he wouldn't have just, you know, said things just to keep me around, but he would have this box of tissues ready, like just to listen and hear the sob stories, if you will. I didn't really have them that often, but like just frustrations. Right. But that was another, his name was Doug and another person, just like with my parents, like they're in my corner. They want the best for me, but they're not going to just let me quit. Right. So just keep going and, and to see who I became through that, I think about it, as cheesy as it is, like a caterpillar becoming a butterfly, like that process of they have to go through the cocoon and that actually strengthens the wings so that they can fly. And what if everything that we're going through isn't stopping us from who we were made to be and do, but what if it's helping us become that? Like, what if life is happening for you rather than to you? How would that change the way that, that you view the frustrating circumstances in your life today? So you're in college. How did you secure the internship? Because it obviously was very competitive. You get paid a really small stipend and then everything else is you eat what you kill. It's an entrepreneurial sales position where I, they, they often will look for college athletes because of the work ethic that, that we learn from that. 
and I was a business major and I like talking to people. I think that's off. it's funny, Jeff, because I actually had taken an investment class the spring of 2009. Uh, funny enough, we had like pretend stocks that we chose to track throughout the semester. And March of 2009 was when the market hit its bottom. Uh, and then from there on out, it, it went gangbusters for the next, what, decade or so. Uh, but anyway, it was like in the beginning of the semester, yeah, I'm so glad this isn't real money. And by the end, it was like, oh, I wish it was. And that's, exactly. that's the nature of it. But my point in sharing that was, Jeff, I learned way more about the world of finances and planning and tax strategies through actually doing the internship than I did sitting in the classroom. I think it's, it's if you're willing to work and if you, <laughs> I love the phrase, if you don't quit, you win, right? Just keep going and, uh, and learn, keep learning when you hit rejection or when you, when you feel that rejection, just so important to remember, it's not about me, right? They're not rejecting me. It's more of the idea when I call someone and they're not willing to meet, either it's not a good time for them or money is highly triggering for people, right? It can cause them to be overconfident or avoidant. And so my goal, my role is to offer an opportunity for people to have a conversation and to set that up in the light of, you know, so-and-so just mentioned, we thought we'd appreciate talking and just sharing a little bit about the work that I do. No idea, going back to that tennis example, I have no idea what the outcome is gonna be, but I'm gonna do my best. And if this doesn't, you know, land, then how can I learn and grow from this? How can I be better next time? Yeah. You know, you focus on what you can control. You want to add value to that person in any way possible. And and what you control is possibly that, or as well as what you control is giving your best and full attention to that person that you're meeting with, right? And you control that, not if they're going to, you know, go with you as a financial advisor or whatever, because there's many factors that in that decision, right? Totally. Um, yeah. And I'll share something a little bit deeper, if I may. So five years ago this summer, my dad passed away. He was only 58 years old from kidney cancer. And he was diagnosed in November of 2017. So he was given about six months to live and they diagnosed that he battled for about eight months while he died. And Jeff, that time with him as he was reflecting on his life was so formative for me. He was so open-hearted about you know, as he reflected, what did he really value about the way that he lived? What deep regrets did he have? And a lot of it stemmed back to his childhood. And he had adopted this performance mentality. Um, he, he literally shared with me, like, and he was a wonderful man. He coached a lot of my sports growing up, like was very involved. Um, I'll share one side note, though. When my daughter was one, so this is before he got sick, this is probably earlier on in 2017, he shared with me, I remember him sitting at my kitchen table. He's like, when talking to me, he said, when you and your brother, my brother were little, he used to view time with us as a sacrifice away from his work because um, he was working hard to build his career and to find security and, and success. But he said he used to view time with us as a sacrifice. And now on the other side of it, he was like, no, this is like being a papa, like having his first grandchildren. He's like, this is what it's all about. Relationships. 
So he shared that with me early on um, in my parenthood. And so that helped me give the lens, even when I, I'm very driven, I'm ambitious, I want to grow, I want to make a big impact and help others. However, I don't want to do it at the sacrifice of my relationships and my family. And so that was so helpful to learn that from him. And even more so as he was dying, you know, about a year later after he shared that, he, at one point he had, he had this profound revelation that he was in the oncology department at St. Luke's Hospital in St. Louis. And one of the nurses came in and she's like, oh, you're Jerry, I've heard all about you. And my dad was just stunned because he wasn't trying to prove anything to anyone in that oncology department, he was dying. And yet he saw how much people really enjoyed him. I mean, they, and they received tons of cards and meals and he had tennis friends that gave them a, a lawn mowing package for a year and these amazing comfortable chairs because he had so much discomfort. And I mean, it was just, it was so beautiful for him to actually just receive uh, not because of anything that he did, but because they loved him because of who he was. And so that was profound, um, just a revelation for him to be like, oh, it's not about what I do in my career, or what kind of house I live in, or, you know, how much, how much I accumulate or what my family looks like. Not that those things don't matter, but if we're looking to those for our identity to prove like, aren't I successful, right? So therefore you'll love and admire me. It's like, well, what if you turn it on its head and it's like, well, but you're loved because of who you are, not because of what you do. Right. And then from that, and that's, that's secure attachment. I don't, I don't know if you've heard of the, the attachment theory, uh, but I've, I've just found it very fascinating recently because I learned, oh, I, uh, it, people can either be anxiously attached or avoidant attached. And, and the goal is secure attachment, but um, and that secure is knowing, okay, I'm, I'm loved because of who I am. Well, for me, this anxious attachment was, it was this conditional sense of well-being that I adopted from my dad of, okay, I'm okay as long as, as long as people think highly of me, as long as I perform in my work, as long as my kids aren't incessantly whining or fighting with each other. Um, but then if things aren't going well, then I find, would find myself getting irritated or, you know, just clamoring for my next hit of success so that I could then feel like, okay, everything's okay. Like, I don't want to live like that anymore. And so finding this place of, okay, I can just be me and I can encourage, I don't, I don't have to hit this external metric of success to feel like people will listen or they'll accept me or, or whatnot. And so I just have a passion for, for helping others to know that as well, that like, yes, you can, you can grow your net worth. You can live in a beautiful home. You can have a successful career. Um, but if that's all taken away or if business declines or the market is volatile or whatever it is, like, how can we still be okay? even when these things around us are maybe temporarily not feeling so good. Uh, you're one of the, it might be the only guests out of the, all the people I've interviewed so far that really just have that one professional, you know, job for the same company. Uh, so Northwestern mm. Mutual in your case. So, you know, I think 
when we met via Zoom the first time, what some of the things you said about being a, a financial advisor really resonated with me and just my way of you know, my life philosophy. But you know, you use words like wholehearted wealth, living by design, courageous vulnerability. So talk a little bit about that and your approach to helping your clients. Money is a measure of desire, right? You're willing to spend more or less on something depending on how much you want it. And desire is a measure of the heart. Where are you looking to for security, success, satisfaction, pleasure? And so therefore money is inextricably tied to our hearts and it will expose. If there's any insecurity that we feel, it will come out in the way that we spend and relate to money. So for example, what I saw with my dad was he, he had always been really savvy, great saver, you know, good, had, had built a nice portfolio, if you will. I mean, and thankfully left my mom totally financially secure for which we're very grateful. But Jeff, three months before he died, he was weeping. Part of it may have been the pain meds. He was, you know, on morphine and methadone around the clock. But still, it was a genuine, like, heartfelt remorse because he's like, I could have been more generous. And mind you, like, he had given so much. So I think to a degree, all of us will look back and say, I could have given more, of course, right? But and he, he didn't put it in his own words, but I could see how he had a scarcity mindset when it came to money and a lot of fear, a lot of underlying anxiousness. And, um, and so therefore, you know, things could easily ruffle his feathers. Um, again, he was such a lovable guy. Like you would, you wouldn't really know that, but when the pressure came, that's when you could kind of see like, oh, this is triggering something here, right? And so that's where I think people can either desire to control money, and that that I believe would be the anxious attacher or the avoidant, right? Like I just want to bury my head in sand. I don't want to talk about it. I'll let someone else deal with it, right? That's the avoidant attacher. And so as we know in life, there's pros and cons, but there's usually a, a place of how can we find a good rhythm and a flow where it's not that we don't care, but it's that money doesn't have control. It doesn't have power. It doesn't have to have power over us, right? Yeah, just talking about what are you really afraid of here? And what do you really value? Like a value is something that you're willing to take action in in the face of adversity. You're willing to give up money for it. And so helping people get clarity on what do you really value at the end of the day, whether it's what if you had only seven years left to live or two years or 50, whatever it is, like how can we get clarity on what is most important so that you can look back and say, well, I made mistakes along the way, but I did all that I could with all that I had and, and not carry that weight of regret. Yeah. And I think, you know, that you know, I'm very familiar with the scarcity uh, versus abundance mentality. And, you know, a lot of it, you know, like from my parents, you know, they were a little bit older than you, uh, maybe quite a bit, but, um, you know, it, you know, they grew up in the depression where, you know, they were young children in the depression their parents went through it. So, you know, you just get, you know, it's inbred in you, like you, you referred to earlier as a 
child, right? You you model yourself after your parents, uh, how they thought of money, I think. So, I mean, do you really try to help them overcome uh, the scarcity mentality for your clients or you just kind of uh, position it like you just said? It's what do you value and, and by doing that, it overcomes it? What comes to mind initially is if people have been really good savers, it, the, the College of Financial Planning came out with this analogy of grasshoppers and ants. So people tend, you think about like, what's an ant? Like they can carry 10 times their weight. They're very diligent. They're planning for the next season uh, or for decades on. And so that tends to be the savers versus grasshoppers. They're just having fun. They're bouncing all over the place not really concerned for what's coming. And so those are more spenders. So people tend to adopt philosophy and carry that with them their whole lives. So for people who are ants that have saved a lot, we end up being a counselor and a guide to help them say, well, what are you really capable of? And especially as they, you know, are looking to transition to from earning a paycheck to spending their life savings, that is a massive shift. And there is a lot of uncertainty and unknown. There's a, there's a big difference between spending your savings versus spending a paycheck, especially for the savers, right? For the ants. And so it's helping them to see, well, what's really possible here? And it's not just about, well, what can you get away? Like what, how little can you live off of? But what if it's, you know, how much can, how much more can you give? Or what if we don't need to get this higher rate of return? Not that we're going to settle for a lower one, but what if you don't need to take as much risk now that you've done so much, you know, work so hard to get where you are. So just helping frame the perspective of what's possible. And then of course, it's up to them to decide, but that abundance mentality says, what could go well, right? And looking at it versus the scarcity says, well, what could go wrong? And it, there's always a balance between, you know, we don't want, want to just swing for the fences without any like reality here. And you, you know, we want to plan for the best, but also be prepared if things don't go as expected. And so, yeah, on the, on the, the grasshopper side, the spenders, you know, we end up helping them to say, okay, how can we still live a great life and enjoy the journey, but also be prepared and have peace of mind so that you don't have to go back and find a job when you're 75 or 80, you live with your kids in their basement. Okay. Once you started at Northwestern Mutual um, and you, you know, you got into the rhythm, you know, after the first four months and Doug helped you kind of get through that tough period. But, you know, uh, two questions. What, when did you feel like you were, a somewhat accomplished professional, how long did that take you? As well as what was your biggest surprise around people in terms of their, you know, how they invest money and, and, and their thoughts about money? So it's definitely gone in phases, like with, with Northwestern's research, what they find, and this is probably true of most of the industry, is that once someone makes it to their fifth year, with Northwestern specifically, there is a 96% chance they'll retire with the company. Now, this is research that came out maybe a decade plus ago, but it so it may not be exactly what it is today. Uh, but that's the point. The fifth year is where they found over half of your business comes from existing 
clients versus new ones. And so at that point, it's like, and, and I remember sitting in full-time sales school, June of 2010, and there's an advisor in St. Louis, that's where I started, that shared that this business is like getting a jumbo jet into the air. Like it requires a ton of fuel and energy and effort. I want to say it's like a plane uses 40% of its fuel just in the takeoff. And so that's what this career is. And then once you get to that fifth year, it's like, okay, we're at cruising altitude. We still have to keep our foot on the pedal, um, but it's not as much blood, sweat, and tears, if you will. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Um, you fast forward actually early 2021. So I had my daughter in March. So she's two and a half almost right before I went on to maternity leave. So this was, you know, I've been doing it full time a little over 10 years at that point, 10 and a half. And I had another mentor, Paul, that number one, he had a couple of just one liners that he had in that season. Um, a couple of months before we had a board of review for the, the year prior and he was he just said like Kristen you realize your concern about what people think about you is your greatest nemesis I was like ouch wow that's strong how do I not care about what people think about me you know um but then a couple months later he also shared like you know you're not in survival mode anymore and what he was referring to was financially and it was like oh wow like look around you're right that feels really good um and so then it was that shift of okay well rather than taking something on an opportunity or a new relationship or whatever whatever because it's like oh well I can I can earn something from this right it's a revenue opportunity looking at it as through the lens of well what do I want like will it give me joy does it give me energy to sit down and talk with this person or is it more of just a means to an end? And if it if it's the latter, then it's like, what if it's costing me more than what I'm actually getting from it? So that was a big shift. So the last couple of years has been, you know, more conscious awareness of what do I really want? And it's helped to elevate the people that I'm sitting down with or because I really enjoy these conversations and believe there's a great impact that we can bring. And it's much more than, you know, the basic, oh, you're, you're building. So we need to have this product or this investment or whatever. It's so much more about holistic, not just talking about the finances per se, but the person's entire experience, just like with my dad, like, what do you really want? They've worked really hard to get where they, they are and have made remarkable accomplishments. So how can we enhance the journey and minimize taxes as much as possible, um, give generously and strategically plan for how to pass, pass wealth to the next generation. Yeah, I uh, just got uh, this book, Integrity Selling. Uh, it's, it's a phenomenal book and it was written in the late 90s and I couldn't believe I had never uh, even heard of it. But basically this book has... Um, said that 85% of somebody's buying decision is based on emotions. Yes. <laughs> and it, it's, and it's totally true. Right. Um, I mean, it still needs to have logic to it. Right. Yeah. Yes. Emotion sells. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, it drives mm -hmm. it. Right. Um, so I, I, I want to dig a little deeper into what uh, Paul, your mentor in 2021 said, like it said something about you care a lot for what people think think about you. So like, how did that hinder you? 
So, you know, Stephen Covey, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, starts the book by talking about how we go from dependent to independent to interdependent. We need each other. Um, I became fascinated with trees last year and was like studying them, even interviewed a, an arborist. And one thing that was incredible was to learn about the root systems. And often for newer trees, like trees can identify their own roots, roots of their own species and roots of other trees. And did you know like a tree's roots go as deep and wide as the tree does tall? I didn't know that mind-blowing. I mean, we've yeah. got like a 70, 80-foot oak tree in our front yard. And just wow. to think, oh my gosh, like what is going on underground here that we can't even see? Wow. And often it the established trees will support the newer trees by sharing nutrients, resources, water. Um, and if it wasn't for the help of the more established trees, the newer trees wouldn't survive. We are made to be interdependent with one another. But it's just that I'm not defined by it. So it's not that it doesn't matter what people think about me. It's just that I'm not defined by it. So when Paul said, Kristen, you realize you're not in survival mode anymore. He was meaning financially, but I also took that as, oh, emotionally too. I've been dependent on people for so long. And to be honest, I would, I would encourage people to think about their own childhood how was I conditioned? How were you conditioned to find love and to feel secure? And so for me, it was, oh, I was, I was groomed to care about what people think about me. Like that's what a counselor told me a few years ago. And that was a big aha. Like, okay, so there's this awareness of not that, again, not that that's all bad. Like, again, it, you want to be an human being that fits in with the world around you. Uh, but that also led me to have this mindset of a lot of fear for what people thought. And so finding this secure attachment, again, that having, like, we want to, we want to bear external fruit going back to that tree analogy. But if we're so focused on the external without a good root system and that root, like you think about like roots, they're underground, you don't see it. Like that's kind of your internal life of thoughts and beliefs. And so if we're so focused on bearing external fruit, but if it's at the expense of the health of the overall tree, that, that tree's going to come down. And that's probably going to cause a lot of damage along the way. Yeah, I, I love that self-reflection on what you did there and how it you it helped you because I think you know that's phenomenal. I think and that's great advice for people to 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 do that same exercise. So you've had some great mentors, obviously, all mm -hmm. uh, I think, and Doug, and I'm sure more. But yes, and you and you mentioned and you mentioned Seven Habits of uh, Highly Effective People, which is a, a classic. I love that book. But any other books that really helped you be a better professional? So I love the book Play to Win by Larry Wilson, and that's where he talks about playing with, playing to win versus playing not to lose and adopting the mentality of, of win or grow versus win or lose. That was very uh, transformational for me. Let's see. I love books. One that I actually just came across this morning on my bookshelf, it's called The Wealthy Gardener. Hmm. And it combines a story, like a parable in the beginning of each chapter with uh, lessons that I think it was a man in his 50s that became financially independent through business and real estate. So what he had learned. So it's just a really neat, neat way of articulating 
those life lessons. And I'll let you know if anything else comes to mind. I didn't come prepared for that, but those are the first two. Kristen, there's two groups of people I, I love to help on the podcast with leadership advice and just advice from great people like yourself. The first group is a recent college graduate. So they're going to get their first professional job coming out of college. What advice would you have to those people, the, those uh, students now looking for their first professional job in terms of getting a great one and how to pursue a, a great career? First off, I would say have awareness along the way of what lights you up. Like, what do you really feel invigorated by in your work? What are your values, your vision, your goals? And pursue opportunities. Also hold it with an open hand that if, if where you begin with isn't where you are in two years or five years or 10 years, that's okay. But just relentlessly pursue what your passions are. And I think it's important to know also, realistically, 70% of your time in your work, hopefully you're doing something that, you know, gives you energy and, and you feel satisfied doing. There's always going to be 30% that you're like, all right, this is, Maybe it's administrative tasks or maybe it's with people in some situations. So, um, but hopefully the majority of your work is something that you're, you're invigorated by that you feel like you're using your skills and you're growing in. Um, but it's not going to be a hundred percent. I love that. Cause that's totally right. You're, there's some tasks you're like, Oh my God, I hate doing this, but you have to look, hopefully that's not the majority. Like you say, yep. I love that answer. Uh, the next group I'd like to help. So after, you know, several years, whatever the time frame is, people start leading other people from a, you know, an org chart perspective. So now you're in charge of other people or you're, you know, setting the strategy, hiring, doing these things. What advice would you have for people on their leadership journey uh, when they're starting out on that and to become a great leader? Two words, emotional intelligence. So under, and there's actually a book, I think called EQ. So that's, that would be another. Yeah, I think it's Daniel Goldman. I don't quote me on that, but yeah, it's a yeah uh, EQ. I love it. Yeah, so people can be very smart intellectually, but if they don't understand their own emotions, what motivates them, and how they're impacting others, um, that's really going to stifle their their impact and their their leadership capabilities. So, and I. I, I would just say too, like, understand it is a journey. The last three years for me specifically have been honestly from head to heart. It was early in 2020 that I realized, like, I've been living from my head. How do I, how do I live from my heart? And it's taken, and I, I would say I've had seasons of breakthrough. It is not an overnight um, transformation. It's a long, and I'm still on it. I'm still on the road and that's okay. Absolutely. Well, Kristen, you've been a great guest. I love uh, your energy is beautiful. And I think what, how you, uh, really, uh, put yourself out there and your just whole philosophy about helping people, uh, achieve their goals based on their values is, is great. So thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast today. 
such a pleasure to be with you, Jeff. Thank you. I just love my uh, conversation with Kristen. I, I think, uh, I believe she's the first wealth advisor to be on the uh, podcast, which mm-hmm. is phenomenal. And just start thinking about uh, her philosophy of how she helps customers. You know, she's talking about pursuing wholehearted wealth and living by design and talks about courageous vulnerability and unlock their hearts, her clients' hearts through their finances, which is really, you know, I think interesting. And yeah, I just so enjoyed, you know, our analogies, the grasshopper versus ants, mm-hmm. meaning the, the spenders versus the savers, you know, the difference between wealth and desire, or how they're related, actually. So I, I just thought she was really nice and she has great energy. Joe, what did you take away from yeah. the episode? Yeah, no kidding. Uh, you know, I, it's been kind of a running gag that we've had on this, this podcast of people that get their degree in one thing and then ended up the rest of their career in something else, um, which is certainly my story and I think is the story of almost every one of um, your your guests that you've had. But here comes Kristen, gets a degree in business and then becomes a financial advisor immediately. And that's the job that she's had her entire professional career. So I think that shows us that that, um, that does at least happen sometimes. God bless her if, if somebody can do that and stay in that career forever and retire a financial advisor. I think that's a, a wonderful thing for her. The interesting thing about that, though, is that even though that has defined her career, the greatest life lessons that she shared during the interview were not from that college education. They were from the sports that she played and the tennis that she played and, and, and then also from the passing of her father. She spent more time talking about her life philosophy that was learned from those two things, from the sports and from the passing of her father, than she did talking about her bachelor's degree and what she learned from that. So I think that shows us that college obviously is gonna be an important thing and that's where you get the learning from, but the real life lessons are gonna come from somewhere else other than college. Yeah, I totally agree. And obviously she was close to her dad and the lessons and uh, that he imparted on her as well as kind of the, you know, he had some regrets, even though he shouldn't have, right? Just yeah. based on his kind of scarcity mentality, which we talked about. But, but she was very philosophical about it. She wasn't, she, it, it's not that she was sad, you know, um, uh, about his passing or anything. It's, it's, right. it's more than, it, it's more like these are things that we can learn as a result. Yeah, absolutely. Um, any uh, pearls of, leadership wisdom you want to tell the audience today, sure Joe? sure today we're going to look at that great philosopher and consultant whose name is dogbert and uh, one time he said quite wisely i might add incentivize the resources to grow their bandwidth to your end state vision don't open the kimono until you ping the change agent for a brain dump and drill down to your core competencies Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Corporate Couch. If you enjoy the podcast, I would love for you to take two minutes out of your day to rate us five stars and write a review. Please join me next week to learn from another great leader sharing their professional journey and insights.